Good day, listeners. You're tuned in to Ranching Reboot, the podcast that's rebooting your thinking about farming, ranching, and food systems. I'm your host, Brian Alexander, and today we're joined by Logan Priveno, one of today's most innovative and progressive ranchers. We're here to discuss the current state of agriculture, the challenges of sustainable ranching, and the impact of corporate farms on rural America. So sit back, relax, and let's dive into the world of regenerative ag. This episode is brought to you by C90 Ocean Minerals, the first step in regenerative agriculture. C90 offers a complete spectrum of natural minerals and trace elements that feed soil biology, enzymes, and fungi to regenerate your soil matrix and improve soil fertility. Soil with improved microbiology and mineral nutrition will grow protein-packed and nutrient-rich pastures that your animals will thrive on. Plus, our premium mineral salt offers five times the valuable minerals and trace elements versus leading competitors. Give us a call at 717 580 1458 and our experts will develop a custom program that fits your operation or visit our website to order smaller quantities including for your garden visit c90.com and use the promo code reboot to save 10 percent today that's 717-580-1458 or sea-90.com promo code reboot there's also a link down below in the show notes and on my link tree Well, good morning, Logan Pribino. Thank you for joining me here on Ranching Reboot. How are you this morning, sir? Doing excellent. I woke up to inch 60 rain, so uh, I could not be in a better mood, Brian. An inch 60. You just couldn't help but brag about that. that that's okay. That's all right. <laughs> I, well, I'll tell you, one week ago, we were in, in your shoes where uh, we had just missed a rain, and we it had not rained in the spring yet we had not seen a rainstorm one week ago so um i i it was only a week ago that i i was in the exact opposite mood well we're, i mean for those of you out there in podcast land this is kind of like uh, i like let's just call it the 10th of may um you said you had an inch 60 overnight i don't think i've had that since january 1 yeah it's it's getting pretty gruesome down here in the red hills but uh i think i have a plan like i've been working and driving real hard towards a plan to how i'm going to survive this year and um i think I'm, I'm closing in on it and hopefully by the time this comes out i'll have that nailed down and now hopefully by the time this comes out i'll have some more rain and <laughs> I'll, I'll be able to go to a better plan so um logan why don't you get us started off here a little bit tell us a little bit about yourself and um and where you're at sure well i'm logan Privino, fifth generation at wine glass ranch in southwest nebraska uh, Southwest Nebraska is kind of where the sand hills meet the sand sage hills of Colorado. Unique little ecosystem advantages and, and disadvantages versus Colorado or the sand hills proper. Um, we do farm and ranch, cow calf stalker, and uh, just dry land farm ground here where we get 19 inches annually. Uh, last year we got nine. Uh, it was a, a good lesson in ecosystem management last year i feel like i got my not phd but maybe my master's degree in in managing sand ecosystems so um coming off a really good good learning year here in southwest nebraska okay you went through that a little quick uh you said you do have some dry land farm ground that's correct yep okay um now tell me a little bit about and 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 there's some grass in there too yeah yeah so yeah we've got a couple ranches um you mind telling me like roughly what kind of acres you guys run grass and 
grass and, and farmland balance? Sure. So it'd be uh, about 20,000 grass and about 5,000 dryland farm acres. Okay. Well, fair little spread. You could run a few, imagine just, you know, three or four head, just a few on that. And assuming it doesn't rain less than 10 inches. Oh. Yeah. Maybe we can get through the next two hours and not, not completely focus on the total lack of rain that we've had for the last three years. Um, so what, uh, I, I'm not sure where to go from here. So tell me, tell, how do you, how do you guys graze cows up there? So my dad uh, went to ranch for profit in the um, late eighties with Stan Parsons came back and decided he was going to go whole hog um, and developed our ranch in the, in the windmill style uh, system where like wagon wheel style. Yeah. Where you have one water point and then it was kind of extensively fence developed. Uh, I was in, I was a junior high when he was doing that. I, I built a fence. We had a, a fence crew for many years to kind of go out and develop it. Uh, so I'm a second generation management intensive grazer, which is pretty cool. There's only a handful of them. Uh, one of the I, coolest things about being, yeah, you'd be one of them. Uh, I know some uh, in Colorado, but it's a, you know, we're one or 2% of the ranching population. And the cool thing about it, Brian, is we didn't have to convince our dads or our grandpas that this crazy idea will work, right? You and I grew up with it. And so it, it, it you know, we, we're kind of blessed where we can take it to the next level. And, um, you know, we don't have to prove it to ourselves or prove it to the the family members that, that it's a system that works. So we've been, we've been doing management and intensive grazing for a while. Um, we're not, we're not mob grazing a whole lot. We do mob graze some cover crops, but on the range, we, um, try to hit each pasture two times a year for less than seven days uh, each time. So five would be ideal. Uh, we don't generally get there on most of our paddocks. And I'd, I'd love to hit each one just once. But again, um, we can do that on some of our pastures, but we haven't figured out how to, how to really do that on all of the paddocks. So when you're talking mob grazing, is that is that what I would call a strip grazing, like a daily move and, a, and an ultra high stock density? So like, what would you, where do you, where, where do you define the transition between, you know, a normal move and more of a mob graze? Is that a stock density question for you? I think it is. I think there's a, there is a, a textbook definition for mob grazing. It's X amount of beef pounds per acre. And, um, like when we mob graze, we'll take almost a thousand steers, put them on, you know, four acres five acres uh, we did do daily on our cover crops uh, we did back off as a residue management to do two or three days worth of grazing just to kind of be less efficient with the grazing essentially on our cover crop system so we can uh, set down some residue trying to do math you said a, a thousand stalkers like a 500 pound stalker so that's a half a million pounds on five acres hundred thousand pounds an acre and that was on what? Uh, that was for a day, you said? A couple of days. Typically. Okay. We, did, we started out the first couple of years that we were strip grazing cover crops. We were doing daily moves. Um, we, we can do it. We did it just management wise, went to two or three days, uh, just less poly work. And then also we just, we, we were too efficient. We were harvesting a little, a little too much with those steers. And we really only want to 
we were trying to harvest most of it. And that's what I wanted to do to begin with. And then I learned that no, you know, a third is, is, is plenty. And that's actually all that you want. You want to leave the, leave those stems, which is two thirds of the residue on the, on the ground. You don't want any utilization on the stems. Have you tried doing any of that on native range or are you just, just doing the mob grazing daily moves and, and ultra high density on planted stuff? Just, just our cover crops. Now, uh, John Maddox had Jaime out, Jaime Alonzo out to do a field day on his place. So we're neighbors right? Uh, in, in Chase County. And um, he did it uh, with John's first calf heifers where he put, I think 700 first calf heifer pairs on like two acres and moved them three or four times a day with temporary wire. And he did that for a week or he had John's crew did it for a week. And then Jaime came out and kind of talked about it. So I have not done it myself. I've seen it. Uh, interesting. I, I I wonder if that's not the, the future utilization for um, maximizing the return on your rangeland acres. Well, I guess we'll just skip right to the end. I think it is. Um, you know, you made a comment about efficiency, and that's what you know. That's what the mob grazing or the strip grazing really brings to to a ranching operation. Is it brings a very very high level of forage utilization and grazing efficiency, but you have to be very very careful and make sure you you know make sure you treat that piece of ground with all that impact correctly following and. You know, like three, four years ago when I was doing it on native range, it was raining all the time. It's like, okay, you know, we can look at, you know, a 21 to 31 day rest period on this and not, and not worry about hurting it. And I think right now I need to be thinking about at least a 90 day rest period before regrowth with the you know, total lack of rainfall that we've got. Um, in 2019, 2020, I would have been looking at like 40 to 50,000 pounds per acre stock density on a daily move. Uh, this year I might be lucky to get 20,000 pounds on a daily move, maybe more like 10 or 15, just based on the forage that's out there right now. Yeah. So it's the differences can be pretty staggering, but what I saw with animal performance, I I've always liked the animal performance that I've seen, you know, the, the three different experiments that we've done with strip grazing. I've really, really liked the animal performance. Yeah. I, I was surprised too with, with Jaime he took it all, you know, it, it, if you move a large group four times a day and restrict them, they, 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 they remove not by, they remove all of the grass. They don't consume all of the grass, but a hundred percent of the grass is defecated on trampled or consumed. So when you leave the pasture, it is, it is nothing. And I, I was very surprised at, at that when I saw it and, um, and I did like how his system was, if you have grass, you can move quicker. Uh, you can also supplement in like the back pastures to kind of create residue. He, he really, he really had thought through the uh, different tools that you can use. And, and he, one of the keys was there are three rules to his system. It's fat cows, fat cows, fat cows. And I, I thought that was, that was really, a lot of times we can kind of get lost in the weeds on the grass management. And uh, well, I've done it myself, uh, but he, his, his three rules were fat cows, fat cows, fat cows. I think because there were some wrecks essentially early on. Okay. I mean, and, and I can see that, you know, like 
we kind of get caught up that, you know, focusing on grass or, well, I guess we'll, we'll borrow a quote from that school that shall not be named. There's no sense in hitting bullseyes if you're aiming at the wrong target. You know, <laughs> you waiting to get some sponsorship before we start dropping their name every other hour. Oh, that's what this thing is for. <laughs> <laughs> every time I push that button, Dallas owes me a dollar. <laughs> Oh. Yeah, that that joke goes back to like episode two, I think, or one of the first ones. Um, but yeah, we we focus on the wrong things, and you know, at, at the end of the day, what are we trying to do? We're trying to put pounds of beef. You know, we're trying to put pounds of beef on somebody's plate, and at the the doing that with the most efficiency that we can, you know, employing techniques like strip grazing and you know, mob grazing and cover crops and finding the the breed of cow that can convert our pastures more effectively than anything else. Fat cows. Okay. It, and I, I say this all the time. You can feed condition and fertility into anything. And that always has to be considered when we're talking about cows in a more natural environment. Because, yeah, we can, sup, you know, I can take a cow, put them over my pasture and I can have the, I can have supplement tubs out there that'll make her look awesome, and my grass looks like crap. That doesn't mean I'm doing things right. I can have a cow that looks, you know, kind of rough standing in a good-looking pasture. She might be fat. She might be slick. Okay, she's not going to win any shows, but she's still giving me good calves. That's a cow I can get behind. Yeah, I agree. And supplement too, and you can supplement with additional acres. So I mean, you can give your cows double the acres of you know what you should give them and and they're fat and you think you're doing a great job but if you're accounting for fair market value of the rangeland it's the most expensive supplement on the planet and so i see that I, I see that often in in my area just giving them extra acres and um patting yourself on the back because you're you know everything looks good even though you don't have the the right genetics that can thrive on a limited resource Yep. And we're talking about just, just the few minutes we visited before mash the record button, man, there, there's some good stuff in there. Um, you know, competition, not competition. Um, I'm going to have to edit, edit this a little bit and clean up some of these pauses here front end. Cause I don't know what the hell I'm talking about this morning. <laughs> happens every once in a while. Um, and no, we talk about cows, you know, cows on pasture, cows on cover crops. And, you know, we talk about supplementing and, you know, feeding condition into them. One of the things that I learned or got, you know, one of the concepts that kind of got beat into my head fairly early, you know, through my course of, you know, list of hearing my dad come back from ranching for profit going myself was you need to have an enterprise that fits your environment. And Alexander Ranch is 7,000 acres of native range. There's not a lot of farm ground around here. A couple of the neighbors have a little, have some wheat pasture. There's some wheat pasture down here on the river, but it's not much. Like the ranch is kind of in the middle of grass country. So I had to build a business based on the resources and assets that I had a grass ranch. Yeah. So I'm, I have cows that can do good on grass. And similarly, 
up there on wine glass, you guys have some farm ground. So talk about that a little bit. Talk about how you use your farm ground in conjunction with your native range um, to maintain stocking right through the year. So we'd be the opposite of you. Uh, we are surrounded by farm ground. Uh, so our, our neighborhood here in Southwest Nebraska would be about one third irrigated ground, one third dryland farm ground, and then one third uh, range. So our ranch, we spend our ranch, quote unquote, is mostly farm ground. So like if you look at our AUMs harvested per year, close to 60 to 65, kind of depending on the year, we spend on on farmland. So that's uh, kind of a different deal. And then north of us, you go 60 miles north of us, then it's back to where where you are, where it's, where it's just range, you, you know, as far as you can see with maybe a little bit of farm ground. So we we are very unique in that we spend most of our time ranching in the Corn Belt. So I kind of call it the corn, the corn coast of branching. And um, it is it's very different. And the, the cool thing about it is, Brian, is especially in Nebraska, Kansas is kind of the same. The rangeland rents are just out of control. And and every I we figure uh, one day on farmland is roughly like half the cost. Corn stalks would be a big one for us. We do a lot of um, residue grazing. And the, the minute I can get a cow out on corn stalks, my cost per carry halves. So uh, we we try to maximize the days that our steers, heifers, and cows spend on on other people's farmland or our own. It it almost sounds like that's backwards for me. Like you're getting your cheapest gains in the dormant season because you're on crop residue and covers, and your summer's the most expensive season for you to get through. And for me, it's the total like it's it's totally backwards. Summer's summer's the cheap, easy season for me to get through because that's what most of my resource is. And I really struggle to make through the winter because protein and forage availability. Yeah, you're you're right. We're we are the and then you go west of us and it's the same as you are, right? We're in this really weird niche where we have an abundance of of residue to graze. And and yeah, if you you know, if you feed hay in Wyoming, your costs double as soon as the as soon as you start feeding hay, at least double, right? This year it'd be more than double. So we're we're in a very unique spot. So you use, so how do you use your, let me back up again. I think I, I think I captured it right when you said about 60% of your, your total AUMs, your total production comes just off the, the farm ground, which yeah. you said was about 5,000 acres. So we rent a lot of grazing ground. So, uh, we, we, it's on other people's farmland. It'd be of the sixty percent. It'd be mostly on other people's farmland. Right. Right. What I was getting at is that sixty percent of your of your AUMs comes from twenty percent of the land base. Correct. But you know, since we 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 go all over the county renting this ground, so it it kind of comes from twenty percent. But reality is, is we rent a lot of residue a lot of cover crop grazing for, for other people so that five thousand that we farm is just what we farm year in year out we do a lot of just grazing for other farmers so in the 80s everyone in this area they sold their everyone 50 years ago every farmer in chase county had cattle uh, and in the 70s and particularly the 80s the farms uh, sold their cows to survive 
So there are very few farmers in our part of the world that have cattle. So we're able to put our cattle on their on their farm ground because they they had sold out of their herds. During that during all the consolidation and of the seventies and eighties and the farmer feedlot the farmer feeders getting getting shut out of the business. I can I can see that. And I can see that that'd be a growth market, you know, as as more farmers start learning about regenerative agriculture practices and the benefits of cover crops and the benefits of having livestock graze the cover crops to bring the fertility back. That's you're probably set up pretty well in a growth market for that. We are, and it, it's very limited the number of people that can can do that. So you know, we build a lot of fence, uh, tear down, and build a lot of fence. We have a, a full time employee where probably eighty percent of his job is just fence management. Uh, so it it's intensive, uh, but we we can do it. And we can do it on a large scale for guys. So um, we we'd like to uh, advertise ourselves as the best forage harvesters in Southwest Nebraska. Probably not a whole lot of people that can argue with that claim. Not a whole lot, no. <laughs> it's uh, I know it's been dry up there. Is that primarily like corn, soybean country? Yeah, so it, it, it it's changing though. I tell you, uh, ten years ago it was it would have been oh probably seventy five percent corn, ten percent beans, maybe a little alfalfa here and there, but uh, more silage crops. Uh, we're we're getting corporate uh, farms coming in from both coasts buying ground turned it into organic uh, alfalfa that just gets wheeled out of the county. So it's it's shifting uh, for sure, but more edibles. So definitely more diverse crop rotations than when I first came back 10, 12 years ago. Organic alfalfa. It's, maybe we'll circle back to that. Um, <clears throat> so the irrigation where you guys are in southwest Nebraska, is that are you guys pulling that out of the Platte River or is that like an underground aquifer? It's the Ogallala Aquifer. Okay. What's, uh, have you guys been monitoring your wells? Sure. Uh, we, Southwest Nebraska is kind of the blight on Nebraska. So there's four counties or five counties where, you know, we've decreased our aquifer level substantially. Uh, 90% of Nebraska, it, it's at pre-development level or better, but Southwest Nebraska, we've and it depends where you are, you know, you go up to Ogallala, uh, 100, not 100 miles, so 50 miles north of me, they really haven't drawn down the aquifer at all. And then you go to Dundee County, Bankelman, they've used about half of their water already. So, it, and we're somewhere in the middle, we've got about 200 feet of water, we've used about 40 or 50 feet of those. Okay. But that that's not an issue for you because you guys don't irrigate, right? not irrigate now we do we we graze irrigated corn stalks we also we will rent ground grow cover crops on on other people's irrigated ground so we own no irrigated gap ground but we you know we indirectly benefit from it uh, i mean i don't think there's anything wrong with you know using somebody else's it's just i i see irrigation as a lot of expense and a lot of risk you don't I agree They've been screaming for a long time about, you know, the Ogallala, the levels in the Ogallala dropping and parts of it going dry. Okay, I get that. It it doesn't make sense to me to be pumping water from, you know, four or 500 feet below the surface to grow a crop today when we're not sure how that water got there in the first place and it's not coming back. It's just, yeah. oh, well. 
it's you know what why it works in the state of Nebraska is the sandhills. To be completely frank, is the sandhills recharge the aquifer and then the southern farmers take the water out. Uh, so, in essence, the sandhills are kind of subsidizing the irrigated systems in the state. Interesting, uh, interesting uh, little thread you started to pull on there that the pasture was subsidizing the farmers. Maybe we'll get back to that one. Yeah, that's my bold, my bold uh, tagline I wanted to bring to you, Brian. <laughs> well, the the farmers get a lot of subsidies. You know, corn farmers, subs, soybean, alfalfa. They get a lot of stuff that you know a guy that's in the direct to consumer grass fed beef doesn't get. You know, there there's a lot of benefits to to that you know, to the commodity production quote conventional scheme of production, because there's a lot of government subsidy involved in keeping that system going. Yeah. It's, it, it is crazy, you know, how, how long that's been. And, and, you know, it seems to be only increasing and growing as the years go by. Hopefully that's a trend that'll reverse, but you know, how far are we from the point where all agriculture has to be subsidized. I, well, I mean, if you look at it, you know, ranching was never subsidized, never really got government payments, and and that has changed in ten years, and it's drastically changed in the last three years. Uh, it seems like ranching is is somewhat going the way of the commodity crop production. Yeah, I mean, I I can see your point. But I think that a lot of livestock production, especially cow-calf, is it's too diversified and there's not too diversified. It's It would be a hard one to really, really try to capture, you know, on, on the cow-calf side. I mean, once you get that calf to wean, weaning size, then everything after that's a pretty standard process. I mean... You can you can round peg round hole those you know every single one of those calves that comes that comes out of that system you know comes through a sale barn, it's a commodity now and we can take that and plug that into the background or yard we can plug that into the grow yard we can plug that into the feedlot and we can pump it full of you know corn and soybeans and make it gain within a, within a pretty reasonable window, and all that crap subsidized. Yeah, it is, and. But, but so is, you know, so, you know, we talked about the drought, you know, we're, we're getting drought payments now that that didn't exist 10 years ago. So, um, and it's one of those, you know, I reluctantly cast a check and I, I don't want to pretend like I don't participate in these programs. I mean, I, we participate in all of them. Uh, so uh, I'm, I'm the largest hypocrite I know, put it that way. Well, if it's there, if it's there, you might as well use it. Yeah, my neighbor says that you're going to spend it better than government, so you might as well take it. They're just going to build atomic bombs or send it to Ukraine. You might as well take your four <laughs> nickels. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they're just they're going to inflate and print the economy out of existence. Um, <laughs> you mentioned uh, you you said a, you made a comment about corporate farms coming in and buying up ground and and growing alfalfa and. Man, I just, I can't help but think about what's going on in Arizona. 
is there's there's several large alfalfa farms in Arizona that are using Colorado River Basin water. And it probably wouldn't be a big deal if these alfalfa farms were like growing alfalfa to send to cows on a Texas panhandle or something, but they're not. They're, they're owned by Saudi they're, Arabia. Exactly. They're owned by Saudi Arabia and they're growing alfalfa to send to Saudi Arabia to feed cows and horses in Saudi Arabia. Now, why do they need alfalfa grown in Arizona to feed Saudi Arabian livestock in Saudi Arabia? crazy because they can even do that well the saudi government made it illegal to grow alfalfa in saudi arabia i didn't heard that part it's literally illegal to grow alfalfa in the saudi arabian desert by government decree because it takes too much water wow i had not heard that and okay so it this is all like this is all verifiable. Somebody else has already put all this information out there, but it takes like what five acre feet of water to raise a crop of alfalfa or you know, on alfalfa all year. Yeah. Five acre feet is the same thing as 60 inches of rainfall. Seriously. Well, how many huh. inches is five feet? I mean, that's yeah. what it is, right? That's how that's how rain's measured, right? If you get an inch of rain. That's that's that would cover that would cover the area the rain fell over one inch deep. That's how that works, right? Well, an acre foot's the same way. It's one foot of water over an acre. Yeah. So if we're if it takes sixty acre feet, or not sixty acre feet, wow, five acre feet, sixty inches of water. Yeah. Sixty inches of rainfall on that whole pivot to raise that alfalfa crop. And like, ship it to the desert. Yeah, in a desert, in an area that receives less than eight inches of rain, we're going to irrigate 60 inches to grow alfalfa to put on a ship to send literally halfway around the world to feed cows in Saudi Arabia. Doesn't make a lot of sense. It doesn't, but for some reason, it's entirely legal for foreign nationals and foreign companies to own land in the United States and benefit from U.S. federal crop subsidies yeah and it's it's happening up to a lesser degree you know in ranching i mean the state of nebraska they're the four largest landowners are you know people billionaires that don't live in the state it's the the control of the land is becoming increasingly more corporate uh and that's that is a, a newer thing in the history of american agriculture okay We'll go down that road. Um, so Bill Gates. Mm -hmm. Bill Gates is one of America's largest landowners. He owns the most amount of quote farm ground. Mm -hmm. 200 275,000 acres-ish. Call that. Yeah. Sounds like a lot. I mean, even you and I that own, you know, we manage large tracts of land. We can agree that 270,000 acres is a lot. Yeah. Well, it's a lot of farm ground. Nobody's talking about Ted Turner. Yeah. I mean, Ted Turner has, uh, I think his land portfolio is 2.5 million acres. Yeah, Ted. I don't know if it's Ted or the Mormon Church, but both of those are the top two landowners in the state of Nebraska. And it's not, yeah, not even close. All right. 
Yeah, I think Ted Turner has like I know he has three or four ranches up in the Sand Hills, and I think you put all three of them, you know, you put them together, and they're going to blow Bill Gates' stuff out of the water. Oh yeah, yeah. and then Deseret. I forgot about Deseret. Um, they've got ranches everywhere. Yeah, and they buy. I mean, they buy those guys too. And same thing. What I'm seeing in my county is they buy these corporate farms. They buy sections per year, and they grow very, very, very fast. And um, Mormon Church, they buy they buy a ranch every year or every other year. You know, 10, 20, 30, 40,000 acres a year. And it's you know, guys like family farmers. It's like you, to buy a section of grass or two a year would be a, a miracle. So it's they're they're big and they're only they're only getting bigger. Does it stop or does it does it stop reverse or does the trend just kind of continue and you know the the small multi general generational operations get marginalized and pushed out? I don't know the answer to that. Uh, you know, we're at the crossroads now. Like that alfalfa ground, it it leaves the county. The profit leaves the county. Um, you know, I, I wonder if agriculture uh, isn't going that direction to where there are just outposts and there are the labor class that just services the land and it's a you know billionaire ownership and and we're just the, the little worker bees. That's probably a little bit more of a dystopian future than I'd like to believe we're heading for, if that makes sense. Um, with, with corporate control of all the land, you know, and the food supply being, you know, being all commoditized and everything is, you know, ultra processed. I, we can't live on seed oil. We can't live on vegetable oil. We have to have animal fats. We cannot, like, we can't keep fooling ourselves that we're going to replace, you know, natural fertility cycles, natural mineral cycles with chemical fertility for very much longer. Like, we're getting to the point where I, I feel like a lot of the unnatural systems and unnatural mechanisms that we've put into place, industrial mechanisms that we've put into place over the last 100 to 150 years to to do things like bring synthetic fertility synthetic fertility to the soil and you know tillage that destroys soil structure and you know the the harmful antibiotic chemicals that we that everybody loves to spray on everything you know the the herbicides pesticides and fungicides at what point does nature say enough at what point do we say enough that, you know, because we're all the same stuff. You know, you, me, cows, grass, dirt, we're, we're all the same stuff. We're all literally made up of the same building blocks. Yeah. And to keep up with this, this attitude mindset that, you know, we can do what we want to the, to the soil because the soil will heal itself. I think that, you know, that's really flawed and we've got to, got to look at some of the practices that agriculture engages in as a whole and start questioning some of them. If we, if, if we humans want to have a future on this planet. Yeah. I think that we're, we're now discovering the whole seed oil era uh, was a disaster. And, you know, we, 
I hope what we find is that we unravel from it. Um, I don't, there are a lot of vested interests that, that, we, that we continue to pump ourselves full of, of seed oils. And um, I, I hope that we are, we're entering a period where we're leaving that, but I, I can, I am skeptical that that will, is the reality. Well, we got lied to for so many years. I mean, first it was sugar's fine. Fat is bad. Fat will kill you. And then like what they thought they were saying about, you know, fat turned out to be not quite true. So fat still had to be the bad guy. So we'll just move the goalposts on that. Um, you know, oh, carbs are fine. So it's still, it's now it's trans fats that are bad. And at every step of the way, I mean, we're about the same age, aren't we? You're in your forties. I've turned 40 this year. Okay. Like you can kind of, you probably remember seeing some of it too. You remember before, like there was canola oil and everything. You probably yeah. remember when McDonald's fries still tasted good. Yep. 1990 was the the year. And yeah, this is, I'm glad we got into this space because this is just my pet peeve, man. It, um, and the, the anti-fat crusaders of the nineties, they were this close to being right because fat is bad for you. Fat that comes from a seed oil is terrible for you. And trying to eliminate some of these seed oils from my diet, I, I like the, the, the salad dressings that I use are actually like this, this low fat stuff. And it, what, it's just no seed oils. So like the, the guys that were like, fat is bad for you. They were, gosh, they were, 50% right or 60% right, but they just, they needed to drill it down to, to one more level. Yeah. And then we get into, you know, all the process things and ultra pro heavily processed grain. I think that that's another one, you know, kind of along with seed oils, mm -hmm. heavily processed grain. I think I've talked about it before. Like, okay. Is celiac disease a thing? Yes. Is gluten sensitivity a thing? Yes, 100%. I'm not denying that. Why all of a sudden, though, was there a huge spike in people that had celiac disease or gluten intolerance? I mean, did did we have a did we have a mass psychosomatic reaction to a news piece that I didn't hear and now everybody hates gluten and you know nobody can eat wheat anymore? Did we screw up wheat? I don't think so. You know, the uh, the infamous case is people go to Italy, these people with these disorders, they go to Italy and they're fine. And and we exchange wheat with Italy. Uh, you know, it's a, it's a, you know they, that could be wheat that I have grown that they're consuming in Italy. It's not the wheat. It's what we've done to the processing of the wheat. So um, I think it's the I think, like you said, it's the processes, processing and the addition of the, the seed oils. I mean, I just I, I'm new on the seed oil journey and I never even thought to check the, the the recipe for bread or the ingredients in bread. Why would seed oils be in bread? It doesn't even make sense in my head. It's in all of the breads in my grocery store. It, it I am just now in the last several weeks or months, you know, I was like, oh, I'll eliminate seed oils. Like, OK, I like I'll, I won't eat chips and maybe it's just three or four things. And it, it is it is everywhere. I mean, it, it is a. To be seed completely seed oil free in in particular living in rural America is nearly impossible. You have to cook all of your own food. Yeah, a hundred percent. And even and the grocery store items that you can purchase is it would be less than a third 
of them, you know, 10 to 20%, maybe. Yeah. There's probably not a whole lot you could buy in a flashy package in the store that doesn't have, that doesn't have some sort of seed oils in it. Yeah. And certainly, and then you look at the, the dollar store, certainly 95% of a dollar store, you know, those food items would contain seed oil. So, um, I yeah, honestly I hate dollar stores so much yeah. that it's been probably two years since I've even been in one. I would agree. Uh, I'll tell you though, a good story about the dollar stores. Uh, we, there's two grocery stores in our town of Imperial and they both do a really nice job. We're far enough from, we're only 2000 people, but we're far enough from any regional hub that a lot of shopping occurs in the town of Imperial. So there's two grocery stores, the dollar store moved in. And uh, the owner of one of them, uh, I know we know both of them shop at both, uh, said, well, I, everything I read, my revenues are going to drop by 20 to 30 percent tomorrow. And they did. But um, it allowed the grocery stores to cater to a different type of person that stayed. So their low margin um, customers left, fled so they could save more money at the dollar store. Their higher margin customers, they stayed with them. Now I can buy kombucha in Imperial, Nebraska, by the case at the grocery store. So thank God for Dollar Store for that. I Okay, that makes sense. I see that. And that guy, that's a smart guy. That's a smart businessman. A woman. woman. Even better. Because she's still going to have the greens. She's still going to have the fresh greens. She's still going to be able to get, you know, keep fresh stuff. Because that's not what Dollar General is all about. Dollar General does not want to have things on their shelf that expire in less than a month. They don't even want anything in their supply chain that expires in less than a month. Yeah. So they want the, 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 what you're going to find there is the ultra processed marginal nutrition value. I, 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 I hesitate to call it food. It's yeah, they, like, they had to take cheese off the label. So if you buy like the shredded cheese now, it, it they, they can't say cheese on the packaging anymore. Yeah, I was thinking about that the other day, like processed cheese food products. <laughs> <laughs> That's what you buy, man. You can't call it cheese anymore. It's processed <laughs> cheese food product. Oh, man. Yeah. I, we don't... Uh, our daughter has always hated American cheese, like sliced American cheese. So we very rarely have it. When we, we do have it, it's kind of a, it's kind of a treat. I don't know why, why I got talking about that. Um, but yeah, the, the grocery stores, I, I kind of want to go back to that. And it is very interesting because we have in our town, similar size to Imperial. Uh, I guess we're a little bit smaller. We have one grocery store and I remember when I was, when I was a kid here, we had two, but there was also probably, I don't know, five, 700 more people living here at the time. We got down to one and before we got a dollar general, they decided that they were going to build a new store or there, there was a, they moved, they moved to a new building. that was a nicer, newer building, got off the main street, got down to the four lane where's better parking lot built a car wash atm built a laundromat i mean it's a it's super nice is this pratt and pratt medicine lodge medicine lodge <clears throat> uh pratt has we have we have a grocery store called whites and it's it's uh part of a, it's an iga it's an independent grocery store so they're not like part of the 
like the Dylan's Kroger, which is what's in Pratt. In Pratt, we have a Dylan's, which is Kroger, which is nationwide, gotcha. and Walmart. Gotcha. In Medicine Lodge, we've got we've got White's, so it's a small store, and in Coldwater, which is 22 miles west of the ranch. The ranch is like right in between Medicine Lodge and Coldwater. Coldwater is quite a bit smaller, doesn't quite have as many businesses in it, like parts businesses, you know, place to get repairs and things. So we've always done, we've done a lot of our stuff in Medicine Lodge, but Coldwater has a pretty neat little grocery store. They've got, you know, it's another independent grocery store. Do we go over there to shop? Well, no, it's out of the way. We don't do any other business over there, but if we're over there, we need something. We won't hesitate to go in and pick it up. Don't go to the Dollar General there. And I don't think that the venture is quite over at Coldwater is quite figured out that, okay, yeah, our low mar- the low margin customers, they can go to Dollar General and we need to look at the higher margin stuff that's, you know, fresher and higher turnover. We also might not be able to get a lot of that stuff here in Southwest Kansas that you guys can get in Southwest Nebraska. That could be true. We're we're pretty close to eighty. Yeah, we're two hours plus off the interstate here. I what? bet. I bet. You know, you, I, you, a margin man. You know, I, I overpay for the kombucha, right? I can yep. go get it cheaper. You know, anywhere else, but you know, convenience factor. But by the time that you spent the fuel to drive to the next store that had it cheaper, would you really be? Yeah, and yeah, we don't we don't do that. It, it, we're big. We're I, I you know we we're talking about are we going to be the worker bees and you know it would gut rural America and I don't think that that is what this nation needs is to gut rural America. I think that we need business owners, landowners, and regional control. The central control model is a is a disaster, and a, and we're we're going that direction and it, it it every inkling that we have is that it doesn't work yet we're still barreling towards that as our, our future why do you think that is i don't know the the fact that we have this technology that, that we believe that we can and so that we should uh you know look at the growth of the federal government and federal control like even the it's even like in the state, you know, there's additional control from eastern Nebraska over the, the outposts and the, the rural uh, areas that just did not exist 50 years ago. Uh, we're just we're seeing consolidation of power and it is going to make us all poor. Hard to disagree Hard. with. You know, here in Kansas, we. Kansas State University is in Manhattan. They're kind of up in the northeast part of the state. My daughter goes there. I got another young man that I, I think a lot of. He's up there too. Um, there just isn't a whole lot that there, there isn't a whole lot that Kansas State does for anybody west of Interstate 35. Really? Or, or Highway 81. Yeah. Um, and it's always been the sense that we get, you know, from our lawmakers in Topeka, from our lawmakers in Topeka, from the educators, from from Kansas State University, that Kansas basically stops at Highway 81, and there's just nothing worth talking about or doing research on west of Wichita. Interesting. I think Nebraska is different, but we do have the Panhandle, and so they have to 
we go so much further west that I don't think they can afford to do the same. So, um, yeah, well, you have <clears throat> there's the Platte River Valley, yep. which is corn from from coast to coast, pretty much, and then the Sand Hills, mm-hmm. which is a huge chunk. Yeah, large largest intact prairie uh, in North America. Yep, and then. East of that, you get back into farm country. Mm-hmm. And so there's, you know, there, there's several big landforms that kind of, you know, span a lot of area. So in Kansas, we get the Flint Hills. Yeah. You know, that's in the eastern third of the state. Well, in it's in the middle of the eastern third. Yeah. And what's the western third of Kansas? Mm-hmm. Well, from the 30,000 foot view that you're going to get going over an airplane, Western Kansas is corn, beans, and cotton under pivots. Like that's the view you're going to get. And there's some scattered pastures here and there. Um, so the sand hills, Nebraska sand hills, largest intact prairie system left in North America. Red Hills of Kansas is on the list. Not sure where we are in the top five, but we're there. Oh, really? I didn't. Flint Hill, Flint Hills, Red Hills, Smoky Hills, Lust Canyons. Um. Yeah, that's a short list. Wow, that is a short list, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> it. I mean, it, we plow. I mean, we've lost just in just in the United States alone. We've lost what is it, fifty million acres of, of prairie in the last fifteen years. I mean, it, it's they're active. I mean, it it's a they're going away, and it's 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 crazy how fast it's happening. Oh, I, I think it's worse than most people realize. Have you ever heard of Dirac Twidwell? And yes. The, and Rangeland Analysis Platform? Yeah. Have you have you sat through one of his presentations? I have not. I'm just familiar with the him. I just know of him and the system. I, I haven't had any personal experience with it. If you get a chance, you should go listen to him talk and 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 look at that rangeland analysis platform tool. It's a very, it's a very powerful tool. And <clears throat> you'd probably get some value out of it. Just, just going and messing around with it. Anyway, um, I, that was trying, I was trying to seg you into talking about habitat loss. You know, we're talking about, you know, losing the grasslands and you know, we just have these you know, few remnant pockets of prairie. Would it shock you if I said that we were losing the prairie faster than we did in the 1880s? Probably, yeah, we would. Well, it's a fact. Really? Losing the prairies faster than we did in the 1870s and 1880s. Huh. When, and when it was, you had, what, millions of people out there actively sod busting and we're losing more now. And instead of busting the sod, I mean, which is still happening. I mean, we're, we're still breaking it. There's still people putting in plows. Yeah, it's happening in my county, you know, as recently as a couple of years ago. Yeah, don't don't worry about all that dust blowing across the interstate, guys. Don't worry about that because we got to feed the world. Anyway, so yeah, there is still some being plowed up. But most of it that we plowed up has already been plowed up. And the habitat loss that's really concerning, especially from Drax's um, point of view and what the data that is in rangeland analysis backs up and shows, we're losing our intact prairies 
to herbaceous vegetation. Yes. Faster than we lost them to the plow a hundred to 150 years ago. Like, yes. yeah, I'm, we're in Nebraska, man. We're watching this. The, those cedars are just knocking on our door and we, we thought we were so far enough West that we'd be all right. But John, he's, John has a different ranch too. He would not be necessarily sandhills. He'd be more of the harder ground. Um, John Maddox. Yeah, John Maddox, and and he he's going to be doing some some, uh, some burns here uh, as soon as we can get the fuel to do it. Uh, but uh, man, we've got those cedars are knocking on my door, uh, and it and I've seen it uh, like the lowest uh, lowest hills over there um, by Curtis, Nebraska. It, it's just taking over places. I've been onto a couple ranches there, and um, they're causing more damage than anything. And um, and you know what they're doing is, you know how much we spent, we collectively, like the government has spent trying to eliminate or control those. It's it's uh, hundreds of millions of dollars. And they did an analysis on this and they're like, you know, what is the benefit that we got from this, let's say $500 million investment? It's like, well, we're going to reposition uh, and we're just going to try to preserve those places that haven't been overrun yet. Uh, which would be, you know, f- as far west as, as we are. And I, so my ranch is, uh, we're 20 miles from the Colorado border to kind of give you some perspective. Okay. So you're like, you're straight north of, say, St. Francis, Kansas? That's exactly right. Yeah. Okay. Um, so cedar trees. The, the, the shift, in the in the policy on how to deal with them and then you know the invasive trees like you're just kind of alluding to a lot of this has come from Drax's research and showing that the millions and millions of dollars that they've been spending for the last 20 30 years up and down the plains from texas to you know up into south dakota and montana like they just haven't had any effect and they can show that and now the theory is we need to go find a place where we can hold the line and find core areas that we can go in and hold and defend. One of them is here. The other one is probably just east of you over in the Lust Canyons. And so a couple of weeks ago, I it's probably like right at two weeks ago now, I got invited to go up to Northwest Kansas, go up to Stockton. You know where Stockton is, right? I got invited to go up to Stockton to talk about cedar trees and burning. And I went to school in Hayes over 20 years ago. So I'm from, I'm very familiar with the drive from my ranch to Hayes. And I don't go to Hayes as often as I used to. There's a nice sushi restaurant there. Oh, really? Yeah. I'll have to. uh, It's actually pretty good. So next time you're in the area, check it out. Last few times I've been going through Hayes, I've been going through it about Mach 9, <laughs> trying to <laughs> trying to be somewhere else in a big hurry. Um, my brother-in-law works up there. I'll have, to, I'll have to go grab him and introduce him to some good sushi. Anyway, the drive up there, I mean, I can remember there being barely any cedar trees going up Highway 183. I can remember there being almost none around Hayes. And I can remember my dad in the late 90s 
we took a trip up there one day now we were riding together and you know every time he'd see one out in the pasture like if he'd if he'd spot a 12 inch cedar tree a half a mile out in somebody's cow pasture he'd be like well there they are they're coming they're here didn't really think anything of it you know back in the mid 90s and now here we are you know we're middle-aged men and that 12 inch cedar tree 20 years ago has turned into 40 acres of the damn things and that cow pasture is a cedar forest now yep and it's not sobo pasture that they you know that grass will not grow under those cedar trees oh yeah oh that's that's a fun one all the you get somebody that's read like four sentences of holistic management, like <laughs> the word silvo pasture. And they think that they know everything there is to know about trees and grass and the great plains. Like, hold on a second. You need to slow your roll. There's like a whole bunch of the rest of the book. You must. Have yeah. <laughs> pretty sure there's one line in the first 10 pages talking about context. The, you know, that one's pretty important too. You know, and, and I get that, okay, there's part of the plains that should be more of a savanna. I think that's way east of me. I mean, way yeah. east of you and even east of me. I think that's where the Highway 81 line is. West of Highway 81, grass to the mountains. East of yeah. Highway 81, prairie savanna, oak savanna, whatever you want to call it. Great. The, yeah. the trees kind of stop at Highway 81 for a reason. Okay, good trees stop at Highway 81. Yeah, no, no eastern red cedars <laughs> anywhere, except for the east, I guess. Fortunately, they're pretty easy to get rid of. Have Have you guys had to start getting rid of them yet? Have you guys had? To yeah, start my my dad been on it. Uh, on our property, there are probably uh, less than a hundred, let's say. And what we do is every September we we carry tordon around. We have no cedars where they're not supposed to be, where they would be taller than two or three feet. But we try to get them sub one foot and we'll just put Tordon on in the fall. And it seems to, if, as long as you're in, you know, you're doing the active, you know, we're not doing the prevent defense. We're doing the aggressive go out and get it. It seems to, it seems to be working on our property for the time being. I give you, I give you a little uh, trick here. So all those baby cedar trees you're finding, you know, the, the little tiny ones, the brand new ones, you only got to look about 250 yards and you'll find that seed source because mm-hmm. the, the birds that like to eat the cedar berries, the berry has a digestive dwell time of about seven minutes, which equates huh. to about a two to 300 yard flight radius. So huh. yeah, when you, now the rest of the good news is have you noticed that um that only about 10 percent of the cedar trees will have berries on them i yeah i have noticed that i didn't know it was less than 10 it's it's between one in 10 and one in seven is the incidence of of female trees with berries so once once one of those cedars reaches maturity it decides if it's going to be male and have pollen or female and have berries and you know, once it once it decides that it's going to have berries or pollen, it doesn't go back. Like they don't, they're not like frogs; they can't change. So what I'm saying is, you find those little ones, and personally, you know, if you want to use Tordon, that's fine. It's your ranch. Under two feet tall, 
I'll just go cut them off. Sure. Like Sawzall, like electric Sawzall with a good carbide blade look, works like a lightsaber on those suckers. There's some of them, like, you know, when they're pinky size, I'll just take my freaking pliers and okay. cut them off with my pliers. Sure. Because they don't re-sprout. As long as you get underneath all the green, they don't re-sprout. Some, I just grab all my pliers and I rip them out of the ground. Just, you know, if you pull the root out, you know it's dead. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so the, I guess that's that's a little bit of the of the good news. You know, I'm not so much worried about trying to go get the little baby trees right now. Okay, because I can get those with fire in a year or two. Yeah. What I'm worried about, and I'm using the baby trees that I've that I've gotten since the big fire in 2016, and all my, and I went and cleared my canyons out 16, 17, 18. I'm looking at those little ones to help me find the females that I've missed. Okay, getting rid of those females, and then I can let those little babies grow for another year or two before they hit maturity. Come come through with a fire and smoke all those sub four foot trees. Yeah. So at least, you eliminate the berry trees and as your strategy. Yeah. I mean, you spend an awful lot of time going out and cutting the little ones or, you know, putting toward on, on them. But until you start targeting that seed source, you've just got job security. Yeah. If you actually want to start working on the problem, you got to go after that seed source. Yeah. And they, 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 they come from the windbreaks, you know, that were established. So they, they, they build out from there. So that, that makes a lot of sense. Well, we got to plant all these windbreaks to keep the soil from blowing, Logan. <laughs> <laughs> Didn't work very well, did it? <laughs> oh, oh no, 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 no. I This one is even better. The trees bring the rain. We got to plant the trees because the trees will bring the rain. Well, you know, it would plow, it, plows bring the rain, trees bring the rain. Neither of them proved to be very successful. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Let's, maybe we should say high density grazing brings the rain. Maybe the, maybe we can get that one to catch on to get everybody to at least try high density grazing for a little bit. <laughs> the shot seemed to work pretty well for the plows and the trees. Oh goodness! Uh, all right, man. What? Uh, so t- tell me some more stuff. Tell me. You know, we were talking kind of the beginning that. You and I are both second generation rotational grazers, managed intensive grazers. Um, and I spent a few seconds thinking like thinking about that. That's a short list. Like I've met several others, but it is it's a short list. And like, you know, you said your dad went to ranching for profit the first time in the late 80s. Very similar, I think Ted went in either 86 or 88. I can't remember. I just, I can't remember. Um, and it seems like a lot of the guys that went right around that time did some really transformational stuff and, and really set themselves up on a different track. Like, like your dad, Jeff, uh, Kit Farrow is another one of those early alumni. Uh, Bert Teichert is another one of them. Yep. So it's, it's just interesting to see, you know, some of the trajectory, some of the trajectories, and how some of the ranches that have had influence from Stan Parsons and Alan Savory for over 30 years and see where they're at now. And I think some of the evidence of that is uh, 
there was there was some sort of an award you guys won last year. Yeah, we got the Leopold Award for the state of Nebraska. Can you talk about that for a little bit? Sure. For, the, for those that don't know, tell us what the Leopold Award is. Well, Aldo Leopold was a conservationist before the term conservationist existed. Uh, from uh, Wisconsin, had a sand farm there where he where he tried to preserve the the ecosystem after it had been farmed. Uh, anyway, his uh, it's adjacent to his estate, but essentially it's it's but it, with regards to him, Aldo Leopold, and it's it's awarded to. Uh, land stewards that uh, farm a ranch with the, the ecology in mind and um, a lot of my friends had had received it before me uh, flying diamond ranch in colorado the johnson family there um, good friends with them and then uh, the o'toole family in wyoming they had it and both those guys were my friends and i decided well if they got it you know maybe we should join the elite club and uh, a lot of good uh, and a lot of the Nebraska ranches that I had already known I'd learned were had received it. So we, we got it and it kind of opened a lot of doors and um, got, got a lot of people to, to visit my ranch in the middle of a, a drought. And um, it was, it was a blessing, but it, it certainly shined a spotlight on, on our operation. Very cool. Very cool. Anything else like that? That's uh, gotten any other recognitions that I don't know about? I don't think so. No. Okay. So let's talk about let's talk about some of your favorite schools and resources and mentors. I mean, we've already mentioned the one that shall not be named, and we can you can talk about it again. That's fine. Sure. <laughs> it's enough airtime anyway. I think on your podcast and all the other ranching ones. Uh, I had Bert Tykert out to do some consulting. Um, he still is doing it. I think uh, he came out in 2016. Really helped helped us uh, when I came. I came back in 2012, uh, and we're in, I was instituting some changes. But it was really nice to get Burke Tigard out for two days, and he wrote a report after it. And he really helped um, helped implement some of those some of those changes. Uh, he was a big influence. Uh, Alan Nation, who I've read every word that he's written that I could get my hands on has really, really helped this operation for two generations now, as much as ranching for profit. Uh, those two would be the pinnacle, <laughs> the pinnacles. Uh, and he, he left way too early and uh, it's, it's unfortunate that it is, you know, his writing still exists, but I, I reread knowledge rich ranching probably annually uh, and, seem to get a little bit out of it every time uh that's, that's had a, a very big influence on me and you know like my dad i you know the nice thing is brian we came back to places where they were um profit-minded ecological-minded uh, and oh man it just just we're, we were set up for success and i i can't i can't thank my my parents enough for for sort of setting that up for example you know my wife and i the ranch for profit sort of model and dallas doesn't like when you say it but it there is a sort of a model my wife and i own the operating company and you know my parents and extended family still own the land and cattle company and you know that and i i, I was able to come come back and after a couple of years my wife and i started to buy out the operating company and, and with that you just get so much freedom and you get all the buy-in that you need and you know, if I want to do something crazy and stupid, it's my own rope and it just makes, it makes 
uh, operating an agriculture company just a lot easier for for both parties, and that that was a big a big influence on allowing me to do some stuff that was wild, essentially. Whether or not Dallas wants to be offended, he can be offended, and that's fine. You know, <laughs> they don't specifically push anything, right? And I think that needs to be said. You and I both understand that because we've been, you know, I, I've been at least twice. I know you've been at least twice, and you've been in EL for way longer than I have. Like, look, guys, it's not that it's not that ranching for profit pushes a system. It's not that they have a system or boxes that people fall into. It's they they give you a toolbox and they fill it full of tools and they just keep filling it full of tools. And it just so happens that a lot of people tend to use the same tool to solve the same problem. Yeah, that's fair. And that doesn't mean that it's not a good tool. So, you know, we're, we're, we have something fairly similar here. Uh, I own the operating company. I'm bought into the land business. I have, I have an operating business. I have a cow business and I have a part of the land business and they're all separate. Like my grazing, my cow business has to pay grazing fees. My grazing business, my grazing business has to pay land rent to the land business. You know, it's everything, everything gets tracked. Everything gets taken care of. And, you know, if, if you can't show that it makes money and works on paper, then it doesn't work in real life. Right. Yeah. But it's also important that, you know, I'm using operating company profits when there are some to buy more ownership shares of the land management of the land business, which I, which seems like a, this just seems like a smart thing to do as I succeed and my business progresses, I buy my dad out of the land business. And that reduces his liability for when he's no longer with us. Cause you know, we hate to talk about it. You know, like I don't want to talk about my dad dying, but it's going to happen to all of us. Yeah. And we need to have a plan. Yeah. You're exactly right. So, um, tell me about this field day you have coming up. Cause this will, this will be out before then. So, why don't you plug Perfect. field day a little bit? Sure. Well, I do have two field days to plug. One is uh, in late June, June 21st, I believe. It's a Tuesday. Uh, No-till on the plains is coming up. Uh, I went down to no-till on the plains uh, last year and really got a lot out of it. Uh, really helped me. I, I, I am a farm. We do farm. I am a farmer. I'm serving, a, because of the drought, I'm serving as the farm manager right now. And I, it's a first kind of no-till conference I've been to, I got a lot out of it. But that cr crew is coming up to Wineglass Ranch. We're going to look at some grazing cover crops. We've got an oat mix planted. Uh, we're going to do some warm season uh, mixes as well, uh, where we graze those. And then we're going to go look at sort of our native range system. Um, I love to get people out here uh, and boots on the ground. I think there's nothing that um, there's nothing that substitutes from that. For myself, I've been on you know, my peers have probably been on four or five ranches outside of their immediate area. I think I've been on, you know, 70 or 80. It's kind of been like my strategic advantage. And I think this is a great opportunity to get a bunch of people out on wine glass and, and see what we do. You know, last year we had we had a couple of field days. Uh, we had nine inches of rolling rainfall. Uh, we had ample 
uh, cover crops failed. And you know what? I went and showed people my failures. I'm not afraid to do that. So with the rain that we just got and it just forecasted, hopefully we'll have some some things that aren't failures to look at. But uh, we'd love to have you guys out there. The second one is through Ranch for Profit. There's a young young person's business executive school, essentially. And, and with that, um, there's three days in Imperial, Nebraska. Um, and then the afternoons are going to be at Maddox Cattle Company and Wine Glass Ranch. And another great opportunity to just go, get on a few outfits and, and uh, see something and just think about, you know, what you're doing and what some other people are doing. And um, would love to have you guys out. I'll, I'll have to take a look at that one for no-till on the plains. So a couple things here. So back in January, uh, some of y'all remember that I went up to do a thing for Soil Health U. I, I went and I did a panel for Soil Health U. Well, I was trying to fill the panel. And one mm -hmm. of the people I asked to be on the panel was Mr. Priveno. And of course you said no, because you were going to do no till the week after Yeah, three other people that I asked to be on that panel were going to no till really. Yes. And couldn't come. Now what makes this even, even just like a little bit more ironic is the gentleman that's the coordinator for no till on the plains, Aaron Sawyers, yeah, my wife's cousin. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, Aaron's been great. Uh, it's always nice when, and I, I'm not on the board of no-till, but I'm on the board of like the Nebraska Grazing Lands Coalition. And those directors, they'll make or break those not-for-profits because you just can't, the, the volunteer board can't, you, you know, you're limited on the hours that you can commit. And those directors just make or break those. And Aaron has done an excellent job in getting this field day ready to rock. Previous director of No Till on the Plains did a great job. Like, I do not want to say anything bad or give anybody the idea that I like that I'm throwing shade on him at all. I think he did a great job. I think he's doing a great job in a position that he's in. But Aaron has just taken No Till to a different level. And I'm I'm excited what he's doing. I'm like, I'm I'm really proud of him. I'm happy for him. I keep he's like the hardest guy to get nailed down. Like, like I said, it's my wife's cousin. He lives 32 miles away. I think I've seen him once this year. <laughs> okay. Pretty busy guy. We're, we're trying to get him to meet us in the studio to do a podcast. We can sit down. He can bring his wife. He can bring his kids. We can give them dead microphones and let them play in a corner. And we just sit there and have a good time. It's, it's being, it's difficult to get, to get him for you know an hour or two hour commitment to do anything sometimes yeah i i did i those in-persons are great I, I i google map the distance between us and i i thought about getting down there but i think it's seven hours or not i thought we were closer than than that but you're pretty far south there in kansas yeah it's probably every bit of every bit of six seven i mean it take it take me like three to get up to stockton we're further than you think. I mean, I love doing them in the studio. Yeah, granted, this is easier. When doing one in a studio, though, that's literally a whole day for me. Really? Because if somebody's gonna if somebody's gonna drive at least a couple hours to come to me 
that we're going to go do a studio podcast, you're getting a ranch tour and we're going to tour around the red Hills and we're going to spend, you know, we're going to spend the whole day talking. Yeah. And it's probably going to be, you know, two, three, four o'clock by the time we're done in the studio. And by that time I'm, I'm probably pretty much done and ready to go home and hide in the dark basement with nobody around, but that's my thing. Um, but yeah, I, I just, I really enjoy them. There's just, there's, it's a better show. It's a better interaction. And it's a lot of fun getting to meet people. Um, so it would have been on the release schedule should have been two episodes ago. Uh, episode that I did with Hunter and river from smooth ag. And, um, those kids were, were very interesting. I won't give it away because you know, like <laughs> it's weird. We're talking about an episode that was two weeks ago when y'all are hearing it, but when we're recording it, it still hasn't come out. No spoilers. No spoilers. But it's it's a good episode. And uh if you didn't listen to it, go back and listen to it because it's it's pretty cool. Um yeah. What else you got? You got anything? Uh, you got anything I forgot to ask you about? Costs, you know, economics, man. Uh, costs of ballooning. Uh, this inflation thing is just eating eating us up. We've got a labor force too that we're managing, and um, everything I buy uh, is close to double in value, and everyone's getting real excited about you know, $1,500 calves and all that. And it's, it's, it's tough. It's, it's tough to navigate as a, as a rancher in, in this environment. And um, I just, so we just heard, we had record prices for fat cattle and it all, it all filters back in. And um, Nobody has made a buck yet kind of in the industry. And that's an overgeneralization. And, you know, it, the ranch for profit types would challenge me on that, but overall, no one has made a buck yet because of the increasing costs that we've had. And it'd be exciting to kind of see, uh, see what, what comes of this in the future with this, this new cost structure and the rules of a number of full-time employees per animal unit, you know, they kind of were pretty stable there for 10, 15, 20 years. And I think we're entering a new era in that where, um, you know, Fewer people are going to be managing even even more stock than they did even five years ago. I can see that point, but there's a tip over where you can't handle. What am I trying to say? There's a point where you can't handle more livestock effectively. There's a point where you cannot monitor more livestock effectively, and you know. So the benchmark that they like to throw around an RFP and EL is a thousand AU per full-time labor per FTE full-time labor labor unit. Mm -hmm. And, you know, okay. There's operations that are, are very effective and very productive with 500 AUs per labor unit. Mm -hmm. And there are some that run closer to 3000 animal units per labor unit that are very productive and efficient. It, it, it's like anything else. We got to be careful about, you know, about a generalization because they're just that is a generalization to encompass the, the differences between agricultural operations between say, you know, Southern California and Maine and the sand Hills of Nebraska and the swamps of Florida. It's, I think we have to take things with a grain of salt. 
Yeah, and that's kind of why they went to the they went away from the AU per full time employee to the G, a gross product per full time employee, to, especially like these grass fed to finish operations. You know, you don't you know to make the same money, you don't need a you know fraction of the cattle if you own your customer base. So so they, they they're evolving with that, and we're yeah we're not we're right now we fluctuate around seven hundred annual units per full time employee, which with our we spend most of the time off the ranch, so you know, it kind of hurts us in that regard. But we do we do a lot of fencing, a lot of driving, and a lot of care. So we're we are not at the the benchmark currently. I don't think anybody's at the benchmark. It's kind of like normal rainfall. Well, what's normal? Normal's a setting on a dryer. <laughs> you know, you know the the interesting the, like the Rex Ranch outfits are because they they've got scale and those animals never leave the property bounds and so they're able to um kind of achieve that more readily than people that are kind of hustling and, and partnering and and going out and having their cattle graze different different areas at different times hey i gotta take a quick break i gotta recycle right. a little bit of coffee and we'll come back and we'll wrap this up sounds good i'll do the same when I'm doing these in the morning, maybe I should uh, lay off a little bit of the coffee. <laughs> it's hard to do, especially we're still pretty cool. So the coffee seems to go down pretty good in the morning. Yeah, it's, I think it's headed for near 90 again today. Yeah. Whatever. It'll be fall again before I know it. It'll be hoodie weather. I love hoodie weather. I do. We're, we're still hoodie weather, and we will be for another couple weeks here. Well, if it stay, if if we can get a little bit of moisture, I'll be happy. Like I could just, I'll put the hoodie away if I can get out my raincoat. That'd be make me happy. Uh, so, do you have any advice that you wish you would have had when you started, or did you get pretty good guidance from the start? You know, uh, I come from the camp that failure is the best teacher, and for many many people and. And I might apply to this. It's the only teacher. So uh, my dad, when I first came back, and I I left. I was in California for ten years before I came back to the ranch. And I remember it, I, we weren't here very long. And uh, my dad said, "You know, it takes ten years to kind of figure this whole thing out." And you know, I was twenty nine at the time, and I was like, 10 years. Like I I don't have ten years. I need to figure this out in six months, right?" And you know, you can't. Uh, so I, I don't know, you know, what advice. And, you know, one of the things I do like to say is you, you, you can't learn to swim by reading a book. And I, I read a lot. My wife and I, uh, my wife is a very avid reader. She'll read like 50, 60 books a year. And, and I've read about half that and pretty proud of it. But at the end of the day, you just got to jump in uh, sometimes with both feet and just start making mistakes. And that's truly where the education begins. And when my dad first said it, I was like, I can't believe it. Now that I'm in year 11, um, you know, I know it to be true. And uh, even then, I I have some stuff where it's like, man, I can't wait for another 10 years where I can figure this aspect out. So just get, just jump in, do it. My life's too short to not live your dream. You know, you are going to die one day. And, you know, I believe you're going to meet your maker. And this is all kind of just for fun. So, uh just live the life you want to lead and it's going to take you 10 years to figure it out. So better get started today. 
<laughs> is that kind of a Dunning Kruger type of? Is that Dunning Kruger effect? What's the Dunning Kruger effect? Uh, the more you think you know, the less you actually know. You know, it's like, and maybe maybe I'm saying it wrong. I probably should go find this actual graphic, but it's like, you know, when you're young, you start out and your perceived knowledge is way up here, but your actual knowledge is way down here. And then you have one of those fails, first attempt in learning, right? And that corrects your perceived knowledge and drops it down to more where it is in reality. And then your actual knowledge finally starts coming up at that point. And then, you know, you progress a few more years and you get to the mindset where like, I'm still learning. I still have a lot to figure this out. Where in the beginning, you're like, yeah, I got this whipped. And then you have that big failure that resets everything. Yeah. Like, yep, yep. I've, I've already screwed up that bad. Yeah. Now, now I'm back to, I'm observing and learning and, and trying to be better all the time. Yeah. And I think in, in ecosystem management, whether that be farming or ranching, you know, you get a limited number of those and, um, you know, maybe 40, if you're lucky, a lot of times 20. And you really need to be astute and observant because it's not, I mean, if you live in corporate America and you do sales, you can, you can have a bad sale one day, you can, re, you can learn from it and recover. And the next day you can kind of improve on it. But in ecosystem management, it's, you know, it's a handful and toeful is all you get. So the, the more observant you can be, and um, especially if you're going to be testing stuff like you are, Brian, and like I am trying new things and, and kind of sticking your neck out a little bit, it really pays to to be observant and to be a critic of yourself. And and to, and I talk to my crew about this, I have managers and, and they're like herdsmen essentially, and, and we give them enough rope to hang themselves. And, um, you know, it, you need to separate, you, you need to be able to criticize what you've done and you need to remove the ego from it. Most people, they make a mistake and they're like, oh, it's not, it was not me. I can't, my fragile ego, ego cannot um, admit that something that I was involved with was wrong, but it's so critical to be able to, to walk away from your ego, leave it in the other room and to evaluate what you've done, both good and bad. Being able to be self-critical and recognize you made a mistake and could do something better and put that ego aside. I, I, I'll be real. I've struggled with that for a long time. And it's just in the last couple of years that I've, I've actively worked to sharpen that skill. And it's still not something that I'm great at, but I'm getting better all the time. Yeah. And I find it's easier to manage over the long term by making gentle love taps. My friend Josh Hoy, he likes to say nature plus one, nature plus one, small adjustments, make a small adjustment and then set back and observe and see what nature does. Because if you want, if you want to make a fast change, go to the farm store and buy a jug with a label on it. If you want a slow change, use an ecological tool that's at your disposal, whether that's cattle, sheep, goats, her effect or rest or maybe even fire you know there's a natural tool that you can employ or a combination of natural tools that can be employed to give you the same end result as that jug of chemical it just mm -hmm. might take a little longer it might it might not have as high guaranteed success probability
and it cheaper, you know, can be cheaper, I guess. That's a can of worms. I mean, cheaper economically or cheaper ecologically? Well, yeah. Uh, and, you know, that's another interesting rabbit hole that we could go down. You know, most of these ecological things that we do at Wine Glass, and I think in the Rancher for Profit mindset, it is amazing how profit-motivated, long-term thinking, profit-motivated operations end up being on the ecological cutting edge, right? So I do not manage – I am a capitalist, um, and I do not manage this ranch for the – the good of the earth. I manage it so that I can acquire capital. Uh, and it lends itself, if you're a long-term thinking about ecosystem management, it, it just, it's cool how in concert profit motive and long-term profit motive is tied with the ecological advances. And on the farm side too, and I, you don't have a lot of farmers in your podcast, but split applying nitrogen and like a lot of these like just really cool cost savings things you know end up being ecologically uh a win-win and it's it's been one of the funnest things in my career to watch to see where those kind of two things meet and when this those two things meet you know our our operation and i think it's like yours you just you just run out at full speed do i need to have more farmers on my podcast i don't know um i i i think that farming and ranching is, is becoming is going to become increasingly blurred. Allen Nation predicted that um, cover crop grazing or forage grazing would sweep the corn belt. And, and he he was always right, Allen Nation. His timing was um, off. And I think some of the subsidies uh, that we talked about are kind of obscuring that reality. But um, I think the future of the past and I, I don't know take this with a grain of salt because this is just what i do personally for a living but i think the line between the the cowboy and the farmer in our areas is becoming is going to become increasingly blurred so that's interesting because i kind of i'm not going to say that i would share the viewpoint that they're going to be closer together um I can maybe see part of that perspective, but I I feel for my truth that that's not going to, that that's not really, let me back up. Like I, I could see, I could see how that could go both ways. Um, Alan nation, rest his soul. He's probably right. Cover crop grazing, sweep the corn belt. But I think there's a few things that need to happen before then. A, there needs to be massive subsidy reform because the current crop subsidy system that encourages basically production at all cost and completely ignores things like wind, water, soil erosion, soil pollution, um, that, that has to change. I think, you know, we're back to the saying, there's no sense in hitting bullseyes if you're aiming at the wrong target. You know, I've talked, uh, it's been on the podcast recently. We've talked about carbon, you know, you and I have, we, we have an offline carbon conversation coming. Um, you know, and some of the conversation I've had about carbon with some other folks, like namely Paul Brown from a couple of weeks ago, was they're going to take carbon from ethanol plants in Iowa and pipe them to western North Dakota and inject them in the ground. Like, is that carbon capture? Yes. Is that technically sequestering tons of carbon? Yes. 
is that a bullseye we should be aiming at? Probably not. You know, the, the carbon that you and I can sequester is in the soil. It's in the top six feet of the soil. And it's sequestered by the action of living roots that are stimulated by grazing ruminants. And the carbon only stays in the soil when the plants stay in the soil and the soil's not tilled and the soil's not sprayed. So when, when we start looking at what it takes to actually build soil organic matter and soil carbon in a natural system, all the synthetic fertilizers go away. All the tillage goes right, away. Not, not all. Not okay, all. Most. most. Almost all the chemicals have to go away. Almost all of the tillage has to go away in order to transition to, to a carbon economy, to carbon capturing of soil. And it's great to put on our, you know, to put on a lefty environmental suit and go like, yes, let's do this. But I think the reality of it is, and this is politics aside, left, right, doesn't like, it doesn't matter anymore because they're all this. It's both parties are the same anyway. There's so many people getting so rich from farm subsidies and not just people directly benefiting from farm subsidies. It's the second and third order effects because you don't see farmers, even in the I states that are receiving massive subsidies for corn, soybeans, and cotton. They're not wealthy. They're not, they're, not buying even, they're not buying ranches. They're not buying more ground, not at 25 to $30,000 the acre. I promise you that. You like without naming names, like you find me a big farmer on social media. Find me a farmer on social media that meets these criteria, owns the land, owns the machinery, and doesn't take subsidy. I don't know. I don't know the person. I'm not that person. And I don't know who that would be. And the point I'm getting to is okay, on wine glass ranch. Owned by the Pribino family, managed by the Pribino family. Okay. And the Pribino family makes up part of the labor co component on wine. Yeah. So if there's an ecological goal you want to pursue, you don't have to go talk. You as ownership don't have to go convince management that it's a good idea and explain the plan and how to execute the plan to management. And then management doesn't have to go tell labor because you have all of those layers in one silo. Like me. Yeah. I mean, yeah. you have other family members and employees. I got my dad on the board and I've got me as management and labor. Okay. So yeah. if, like if I think something's a bad idea, I'm not going to do it. I mean, yeah. it's pretty hard for me to talk myself into a bad idea. <laughs> <laughs> not impossible. Not impossible. <laughs> not impossible. So here's the thing. And you and I both understand this. From the point of view that you know we 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 have the labor management ownership silo all in house, you know, I don't think that there's a lot of folks that do that like over in the I states or even down in the Texas Panhandle. Most of the farmers I know around here, twenty five maybe fifty percent of what they farm, they the family own the rest of it is rented ground. It's leased ground from absentee ownerships. Most of the ranches around me, like it's a struggle for me to come up with other ranches that are in my situation where it's 
an owner operator with their own cows on the ranch. No, it is rare and increasingly rare. And it, you know, long-term thinking, it's really easy when you're the fifth generation and you're raising your kids on the ranch to think long-term and, you know, you, you're a rented farmer, you're a rented rancher. And how rare is it to have a 10 year lease? You know, let's talk about that. I mean, it, to, to pursue these long-term ecological goals only to have it leave two, three, four years later is almost uh, improper thinking, right? I'm, I'm not my, I'm not aligned with, with the goals on a three to four year timeline. And, and um, our ability to, to be multi-generational land managers is just a blessing and and you're able to just come at it from a completely different viewpoint and that that cannot be stressed about how how beneficial that is for for all parties i mean involved to just be in in an industry where you can work with long-term people playing long-term games and and, and hopefully we can keep it alive for for many more generations to come right so we're now at a point where, you know, you said it, your costs for almost everything for the last two years have basically doubled. Yeah, people are excited right now about $1,700, $1,800 calves. They need to be $3,000. Yeah. I mean, they, they really need to be a lot closer to $3,000 to make the economics of ranching work again. Because right now... Yeah, with a partial land payment, you know, not even a complete land payment, but just maybe a 25% or something like that. You know, so where we're heading towards, where I feel we're heading towards is as we move to the right down the timeline, guys like you and me are going to become more rare. Yeah. And we're going to be, the land base in this country is going to be shifting more towards corporate ownership and what does that do when you have a company that has a for-profit charter that has a legal fiduciary responsibility to the shareholders to return profit on shares to return on shares when they own land profit becomes a sole motivator and then we start seeing things like more ecological degradation, more devastation, more bare soil. You know, this is the worst part about it. Is it? And then they, we're seeing this in my county. They brand it so it is worse. They're making it worse. They're completely eliminating cattle from it, and they're branding it as ecological because it's organic. So these people from both coasts are pooling money into Chase County to pursue ecological goals that completely exclude any of the e ecologically minded people in the county from touching it. Uh, it's So we're getting this quarterly multinational profit, and then they're selling it as this ecological bonus And at the same time. And I feel like I'm a madman having to watch both of it happen at the same time. It's, it's disconcerting, but at the same time, it's, it's, that insulation that comes with that, you know, with that corporation, because they, they have the big mouthpiece. They've got millions of dollars and they can say whatever they want to say. They could say, we're helping this by, we're, by removing cattle from it. And we're doing this with it. When 
you know, the, the same speech to a different audience would be able to poke holes in it. Yeah. Okay. But you give us, you give that same speech to an audience that doesn't know. And they're like, Oh, well, that's great because cows are bad and trees are good. And you know, methane cow burps are, are causing global warming. And if we can not have that, that would be great. So we're going to take it out of cattle production and we're going to use it to grow alfalfa so we can ship that alfalfa to cows standing in a barn or a feedlot in another state. And then when we print the label, we're going to print the cow standing on a pasture. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's kind of like we touched on earlier, truth in advertising, you know, what's, what's on that label. And it, I can't remember where I've seen it, but there's somebody that says that if it has more than five ingredients on the label, you probably don't want to put that in your body. Yeah. Okay. I get that. Well, go find something that's got five ingredients on the label and only, and or less than yeah. you're not going to find it at dollar general. No, you know, you're not going to find that at dollar general and that's fine. But that it's the disconnect. It's, it's just this huge, huge disconnect between the people that consume the food and the people that grow it and the people that are selling it. I remember, gosh, I remember the, I remember there was a billboard somewhere in the Flint Hills we used to drive by. You say every Kansas farmer feeds 67 people in you. And then it was 76. And then it was in the eighties and then it was in the high nineties and it was 120. And now it's like 145. Yeah. And you can, a person can read that one of two ways that one farmer feeds 145 people. And it's just so marvelous and so wonderful that we can produce such an excess of food with all of our labor that American agriculture is so efficient. We can grow all this food. Or we can look at it the other way and say, that's horrible. That's horrible that only one out of 145 people is involved in growing food. Only one out of 145 people has a connection to their food. That is a tragedy. It is. And, it, you know, the economics of it too is ecosystem harvesters. And, and as part of our society, we, we have decided that those people are, the lowest paid members and so we economically incentivize people to to leave that production because we've decided it's the lowest value thing that you can do did we decide that as a society or did government decide that by application of wage controls and subsidy i don't know the answer to that i know the reality i don't i guess i don't know what led us here I think it probably was a combination. All right, it'd be hard to put your finger on one specific factor. I'm sure it's I'm sure it's a lot of stuff rolled into one ball of wax. Unintended consequences. I think there's it's it's one of those unintended consequences that they didn't see coming. Or it was a consequence that somebody saw coming and they were told, no, you're a crazy, whacked out conspiracy theorist. That's not what the intent of this is, and that'll never happen. Well, the, the conspiracy theorists were taking hold. I just started reading Robert Kennedy's book, The Real Anthony Fauci, and it's about a bunch of other stuff. I just just dove into it this week. But um, I think 
I think we're maybe not too far away from the conspiracy theorists kind of running this country for a change. It seems like the difference between conspiracy theory and mainstream and, and headline news is about six weeks. Yeah. Yeah. Wait till the seed oil thing hits the mainstream news. And it's it has to eventually. It's killed how many of us and, and we're just ignoring. <laughs> no one would even know about this if it wasn't for Twitter. We'd still be eating, you know, you, soy. You'd think it'd have to. But it's like the whole Ansel Keys and the sugar lie that has been blown wide open. <laughs> I mean, wide open. There's been articles in, you know, in, in periodicals, there's been, you know, big articles in large periodicals about it. <laughs> yeah. Mainstream media. No, like there's, there's all kinds of data and information coming out. Like, you know, from the sugar lie and the and the fat lie you know nutritionists there's not nutritionists there's doctors uh, like sean baker's one of them um there, there's probably a half a dozen i could list if i wasn't on the spot about it but coming out against seed oils coming out against processed foods against ultra processed grains and these guys like like sean baker the guy's 60 years old he's got a phenomenal physique and he eats like six ribeyes a day. I'm not saying everybody needs to go full liver king. I mean, <laughs> do not take $15,000 worth of steroids every month, kids. I don't know who needs to hear that, but do not do that. Um, I, I think there's definitely, there is definitely a lot of health benefits that some people get by completely cutting out seed oils and eating meat only. I don't think I'm one of those guys. I like coffee. I mean, I, I don't think I could eat eat steak and hamburger my whole life. Like, I mean, I got to have some carbs here and there just because they taste good. Same. But I, I, every time I eat something that's heavily processed, I feel it in my digestive tract. Every time I eat something that's got seed oils in it, I feel it in my digestive tract. Like, and I think you kind of hit on it earlier you start cutting those seed oils out and the more of them you cut out, like all of a sudden your body just, just quits tolerating them. And then you start feeling a lot better when you quit putting that crap in your body. Yeah. So I, I hope that it, you know, take holds and, and the whole seed oil thing was in concert with the whole vegetarian thing too. You know, the, the vegetable oil, I mean, they branded it as, vegetarian no the tallow is, is beef and it's bad and it's just the exact opposite and then i hope i hope we get back there i hope we turn it on its head yeah you and i are not you know circle of influence and then circle of you know concern <laughs> a little bit a little bit outside of our circle very small circles there <laughs> very very small circles there uh, i think we're gonna have to come back sometime and talk about the future of ag and the corporatization of ag and danced around it today a little bit and on and on some previous episodes about the stewardship the ecological stewardship and decoupling economic profit from ecological profit 
So at some point, we're going to have to make a choice as a people living on this earth to change the way we're taking care of it and try to do things better or we're going to keep going down the path we're going down. And if we keep going down the path we're going down, we're going to see less private land ownership, more land ownership by organizations like Bill Gates, like Ted Turner, like Fondamonte from that's, that's the uh, Saudi Arabian company that's in Arizona. Okay. We're going to see more of that. We're going to see less wine glass ranch. We're going to see less Alexander ranch. We're going to see less wine glass ranch beef. We're going to see less Alexander ranch beef because they're going to push us all out of business. They want us to all eat the same thing. They want everything to all be the same. Everybody fit in the same box. And as we move into the future, the shared stewardship ethic that we have as a culture on how we're going to care for our land and how we're going to raise our food. We need to change the paradigm because if we don't, I don't, I, if we don't change, I'm very concerned about how long we have of a future on this planet. Well, Brian, you'll be glad to know that in 7 billion years, the sun is going to engulf the earth and, you know, Don't lose too much sleep over it. The end is bad. The end is nigh. It's 7 billion years away. (laughs) Yeah, I I get what you're saying. I mean, there's, there's some of these things that are just, that are so big that it's not even worth worrying about. But then again, how do you change the course of a river? You can change the course of a river by throwing one pebble in at a time in just the right spot. Or beaver. Or beavers. I mean, those two. <laughs> Throw one beaver in, it'd be better than a couple pebbles. Okay, you just screwed up my analogy. So we'll- <laughs> uh, yeah, I got to get out of here. I got to go. Uh, I got to go check cows. Cool. So I will. Uh, I'll hit you up later on the carbon thing. I do want to see how you embedded the carbon. Yep. Anyway. Yep. Happy to chat with you about that. Uh, we'll definitely get something set up, make that work. So, right. uh, what needs to go in the show notes? Where can people find you, or do you just want to stay hidden on the internet? Uh, Twitter. I'm kind of a, one of the Twitter guys, so just the handle, and then maybe the Wine Glass Ranch website, which is wineglassranch.com. We are we're going to sell some cows here in three or four years to help with the generational land transfer. Uh, so we're kind of been wanting to push our cow herd and dad turns 70 next year. Mom and dad turn 70 and we need to start the land buying process to free up some retirement funds. And the best thing we came up with is to grow our cow herd and sell it and kind of go back in on stock or something like that. So that's kind of the big picture thing for us in the next few years. Awesome. Awesome. Well, I'm glad you're my friend and I hope we stay in touch for the next few years and I can watch from the sidelines on how that works for you. Oh, yeah. Enjoyed it. All right. I enjoyed you today and uh, appreciate your time, Logan. Yeah. Thanks, Brian. All right. Thanks, bud. Everybody. Yeah. Go have a great week. I will.